Welcome back to the University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wilcox, Communications Generalist here at U of M Extension. In this episode, we're talking all about edgerfield nitrogen and phosphorus reduction strategies. And we have three panelists here with us today. Can you each give us a quick introduction? I'm Brad Carlson, an Extension Educator. I work out of our regional office in Mankato statewide. Uh, I work extensively with nitrogen, but particularly the water quality issues related to nitrogen and uh, therefore uh, a fair amount with ag drainage uh, because that tends to be a conduit for the nitrogen getting into water. Hi there, I'm Dr. Laura Christensen, relatively new hire at the University of Minnesota, working to update the science assessment that underpins the conservation practices recommended in our Minnesota Nutrient Loss Reduction Strategy. And I'm Jeff Strzok, uh, professor uh, in the Department of Soil, Water, and Climate, but uh, located at the Southwest Research and Outreach Center near Lamberton. Pretty much spent my whole entire career working uh, with farmers on uh, you know, nutrient reduction types of things, nutrient management things, and these edge of field types of practices. Let's just start right off. What is an edge of field practice and uh, why is it used? Our edge of field practices are exactly what they sound like. Conservation practices that reduce the amount of nitrogen or phosphorus that we send downstream uh, and they're located at the edge of the field. A good way to think about them is in contrast to our infield practices that we recommend like improved fertilizer management or cover crops or reduced tillage. Those are all infield practices and the edge of field practices are at the edge of the field catching any extra nitrogen or phosphorus that might go downstream. Another way to think about edge of field practices is that they're sometimes described as conservation drainage practices. So in our drained landscapes, we have a set of practices that we refer to as conservation drainage practices. And the idea of conservation drainage is allowing your tile drainage system to work in the field as it was designed to meet agronomic production goals, but then also providing environmental benefits at the edge of the field by making sure that we're not sending nitrogen or phosphorus downstream. That's the idea of conservation drainage. And our edge of field practices that we're talking about today fit right into that idea of conservation drainage. And I think it's worth noting that uh, the state is currently dealing with with nitrate issues in both surface and groundwater. Uh, you know, particularly when we think about the surface water issue, we've got the state's nutrient reduction strategy, which is uh, uh, was written uh, about ten years ago, a little less than that, and and as part of the overall. Uh, national uh, effort to reduce hypoxia in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, it's kind of directed by the US EPA. And that set forth a target for 45% reduction in nitrate in surface waters. Each state has its own plan. And, and a lot of our research here in Minnesota has indicated that if you're following nitrogen best management practices, it's only about a third of what the nitrogen is that's getting in the water. A lot of it is uh, coming because of the climate issues that we've got, as well as uh, you know some of the peculiarities of the state and uh, with it being cold and so forth. And so fertilizer management alone, while it's an important step, and particularly it comes with the caveat that, that that's if you're following best management practices, which of course that's, you know, that's the area we need to emphasize there, but that alone probably isn't going to solve the problem. And so we're looking at a combination of practices. And uh, so for a lot of farmers, you know, they've been engaged in this whole concept of nitrogen management for a long time, uh, but we're probably moving forward in the state as far as getting uh, uh, a little more aggressive with putting some of these edge of field practices in for the sake of addressing some of our water quality issues. 
I think uh, well, you know when we when we start thinking about uh, edge of field practices and and why they're used, um, I think a lot of the the way that we as as uh, researchers and and extension and and trying to work with our partners and state agencies have really tried to think about these types of things is is to really think about um, practices that are are hopefully going to be a win-win or at the very least sort of a neutral win kind of a situation. Um, we don't really want to look at practices that are going to necessarily uh, possibly impede the farming operations. So, you know, we have this three-legged stool that I like to think about that uh, um, thinking about productivity, profitability, and, and you know, you know, being good stewards of the environment. You know, a, a lot of these types of things, uh, as we work on them, uh, we really try to kind of keep those three things in mind um, so that uh, so that as we move forward, uh, we can try to address some of the trade-offs. Uh, you know, there, there can be trade-offs in some of the things that, that we try to do. Not everything is perfect. If, if there were silver bullets, you know, we, we'd be using them and we'd be solving these problems to, to reduce the, the losses of nutrients uh, downstream. But Unfortunately, uh, there there aren't any silver bullets, and we have to shoot with silver buckshot and and try to do the best that we can. You know, wh one of the other things that that I, I want to try to remind people of, Jack, is we're we're kind of going to embark on talking about some of these things. Is is that you know we we can we can you know build structures or design practices at the edges of the field uh, to you know to work, um, but sometimes <clears throat> Mother Nature has a way of of exerting her force on these things. And although we can you know engineer practices to the best of our ability, um, sometimes Mother Nature creates scenarios for us that you know maybe in really really wet times. I think about 2019 when it was so so wet that our practices were were functioning and they were doing pretty well but just the the sheer massive volumes of water that we were piping through systems um, these practices they can't treat and remove you know every last bit of nitrogen or phosphorus so you know sometimes you know people need to understand that you know there are certain things that kind of get thrown our way that mother nature throws at us that that our practices are just not capable of, of functioning quite at the the same level of efficiency as as what they're they're designed for. So, and I think the other thing that's worth uh, uh, paying attention to with with respect to some of these practices is uh, some of them do perform multiple functions. In Minnesota, we've got these locally developed watershed plans. And so, of course, the meeting the object, objectives of the state's nutrient reduction strategy is part of that. But there's other objectives also, uh, you know, particularly uh, where we're looking at flood mitigation. We may be looking at situations where we need to hold water higher on the landscape and keep it out of surface waters altogether. Uh, that could be part of this. Uh, but then even on the farmer side, there's issues with having adequate outlets. You know, we hear a lot of complaints that, uh, that uh, gee, this drainage system was put in by my dad uh, 40 years ago and it worked fine and now it doesn't. The water's not going away. Uh, you know, and, and so forth. So uh, there, there's other things going on too. There's the need for ongoing maintenance and drainage ditches uh, to keep them working and so on. And so the, 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 the concept of edge of field practices uh, go, will go beyond uh, just simply addressing uh, nutrient content of, of water. 
you know, Brad, you uh, you actually chimed in on something that uh, struck me uh, that I was in in a group that we were having a conversation about this idea of adequate outlets and 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 trying to you know maintain the the drainage systems in a in a good functioning capacity and and sometimes uh, you know different groups you know for example researchers or state agencies or farmers are are using terms or defining certain things uh differently and i recently was in a group where there was a conversation about adequate outlets and and uh, the definition that that group was using was really not thinking about the the tile outlet itself as as a constraint or a limitation, but thinking about things more downstream and that um, the constraint may be uh, culvert sizing at road crossings. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we need to be listening, uh, and, and, and paying attention to, to how, how we're kind of talking about these rather complex and sometimes tricky, uh, issues dealing with water and, and nutrients. What specific practices do each of you have experience with, uh, and maybe which have the most potential for use in Minnesota? You know, some of these things, um, you, 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 you kind of had a little caveat at the, at the end there about which ones have the most potential. Um, that can be a, a little bit of a tricky thing at times, just because I, I think as Brad mentioned, you know, in our, in our more Northern climate, uh, you know, uh, things don't always uh, behave uh, when the ground freezes for four to six months out of the year, uh, as they do in other locations in the country. And uh, controlled drainage uh, is a practice uh, where um, in, a, in a drainage system, in a field, uh, ordinarily uh, we try to look at putting in uh, some sort of a, a field tile control structure within the system uh, so that we can modify the, the elevation of the outlet uh, of, the, of the main coming out of a field, for example. And ordinarily in those types of systems with controlled drainage, uh, there is some additional expense to control structures. There's also some additional expense of, of uh, narrowing the drain tile spacing. Uh, a lot of the times when we do that to try to get a more level uh, drain spacing out there, a little bit flatter drain or a water table. One of the things that we've seen, uh, and we've published a, a number of papers on these, uh, when we look at a practice like controlled drainage, um, there, there are some limitations. It has to be a really quite flat field uh, or uh, the contractors need to be looking at, uh, uh, you know, putting these types of things in on the contour. Uh, and so there's a little bit more of a, a nuance uh, to, to doing that work. But in every year uh, that we've done work with this type of practice, and we had done it for 15 years uh, on a farmer's field in, in Western Redwood County, we always got uh, water quality benefit to it, always. Uh, in moderate drought conditions, uh, we, we, we did see some yield increases. Um, uh, we also had a, a couple of very wet years during that time. And, and when management was not uh, as intensive as maybe it could have been or should have been, uh, we, we did see one year where we saw a yield decline um, because we didn't uh, get rid of the water fast enough uh, under that controlled drainage situation. Um, so there are some situations where, you know, it takes a bit of extra effort uh, to manage uh, a controlled drainage system when you're using, um, say, a manually operated system. Uh, and you can get modest yield increases. Uh, 
we published a paper on this here not too long ago where uh, the range was kind of four to about 11% yield increase under moderate drought conditions. Um, on average, there, there really wasn't much of a yield increase with controlled drainage, uh, but under those kind of conditions where we had these moderate droughts, uh, we, we did see sort of a four to 11 uh, bushel yield increase. So, so that, was, uh, that was kind of a, a nice little piece. Um, drainage water recycling is, um, is a practice where uh, uh, essentially you could kind of think of this as a, as a farm pond uh, where the outlet of a drainage system uh, can, can flow into a, a pond, uh, an impoundment, uh, um, a reservoir. There's a lots of terms you could use to describe that. Brad kind of mentioned, you know, this provides a bit of, of water storage on the landscape. Uh, so it has the potential to maybe take the, the peak flow and kind of cut it down. Um, we haven't specifically done research to see what the, the magnitude of, of, of holding that water back is, uh, you know, on, on say downstream flooding or peak flows, but, you know, anytime we can hold water back, that that's a potential bonus. Um, the other thing that's uh, an additional benefit of doing something like drainage water recycling uh, is from the nutrient standpoint, uh, we can hold any of the uh, dissolved nutrients that are in that water back from going downstream in these little reservoirs. So NNP is, is kind of held back, uh, you know, in the system. The really, really neat potential uh, for drainage water recycling is is that there is there's definitely uh, the opportunity not only for that nutrient reduction component but also uh, the potential to use that water uh, back on the landscape as supplemental irrigation. Uh, we've been doing that uh, work here in Lamberton for about seven years, and the first four years that we practiced it. Uh, we only ended up needing to add water twice uh, in the first four years. The other two years, uh, 2018, 2019, were obviously really, really wet here in Minnesota, so we didn't need to pump any water. However, the last three years, uh, 21, 22, 23, uh, have obviously been some droughty conditions. Uh, and so we've been uh, pumping water back onto some of our research plots to, to try to look uh, to see what the potential benefit would be of drainage water recycling on crop yields here in, in the, these sort of heavy to, to medium texture soils. And so in in the uh, in the the data that we've summarized so far, uh, you know, the first year uh, we saw uh, an 80 bushel to the acre increase, uh, where we put on supplemental irrigation to corn. We saw a 40 bushel yield increase in beans that year, compared to just the the rain fed unirrigated. Uh, the second year we saw a 40 bushel yield increase in corn and a 20 bushel yield increase in the beans. Um, unfortunately, at this point, I haven't worked up the 2023 data, but um, I suspect that we'll see some modest increases in yield there too. So um, again, you know, control drainage, drainage water recycling, a couple of things that uh, we know definitely have uh, a, uh, an environmental benefit for reducing and holding nutrients back. Um, and for sure, drainage water recycling uh, has definitely shown year in and year out when we're actually pumping water and we need it, um, that we can increase yields um, by some fairly dramatic uh, uh, numbers. I want to continue on that theme of controlled drainage, drainage water recycling, and I think you also mentioned wetlands or constructed wetlands. Um, and to the second part of the question, what practices, what edge field practices have the most potential for use in Minnesota? When I think about the tile drain landscapes in Minnesota and across the Midwest in a hundred years, 
The practices that I know that we will be doing include drainage, water recycling, and also constructed or uh, restored wetlands. You know, when I think about the sustainability goals that we have for the future tied with that agronomic production goals, those two practices are really at the forefront for what I'm excited that drainage systems will look like in 100 years. You know, we all know that managing water successfully is such an important part of even just being able to do agriculture successfully. And so the ability to manage our drainage water um, with the practices of controlled drainage and with the up and coming practice of drainage water recycling. Those are just really big parts of what I think our future in Minnesota look like in terms of managing agricultural water. Now in the interim, before we get to the 100 years from now, I do also wanna talk about some other newer edge of field practices, the practices of denitrifying bioreactors, AKA wood chip bioreactors, as well as the practice of a saturated buffer. And so maybe it's important to define what those two practices are. Um, a wood chip bioreactor is, is kind of what it sounds like. It's a pit full of wood chips that cleans nitrate out of tile drainage. Now getting a little bit more sciency, um, inside this pit full of wood chips, there are good bacteria or natural bacteria that live in the environment, that live on the wood chips, and as nitrate in the tile drainage water goes by them, they clean the nitrate in the water and uh, turn it into harmless nitrogen gas. So these, what they're called as denitrifying bacteria, they are naturally present, they convert nitrate in the water to dinitrogen gas into gas, which is 78% of our atmosphere. And because it's these bacteria that are cleaning the water inside a wood chip bioreactor, that's why we call it a bioreactor, because it's a biological water cleaning process. Um, the other practice that I mentioned is the practice of saturated buffers. And as I think many of our listeners know, we had a, a buffer law in the state of Minnesota, which provides immense benefits for water quality in terms of reducing the amount of sediment and nutrients in runoff, surface runoff that get to our streams. But a nuance or a challenge with our riparian buffers in a tile drained landscape is that tile pipes underground short circuit all of those great benefits that that riparian buffer or stream buffer are providing. That tile pipe, that tile main or tile outlet cuts straight through that great riparian buffer underground. And so you're essentially short circuiting all of the benefits that you receive above ground um, with the nitrate that is in the tile drainage water. Enter the practice of a saturated buffer, which is where you cut into that tile main or cut into that outlet you use a what we call a control structure or a water control structure. It's really just a check dam underground that routes your tile drainage water to the side into a diversion pipe so that that pipe can allow your tile drainage water from the field to join the shallow groundwater inside the buffer at the edge of the field. And so you essentially reconnect the hydrology at the edge of the field. So again, back to this concept of conservation drainage, you have your tile drainage system working in the field. And then with a saturated buffer, you're allowing that tile drainage water to seep through the buffer soil to allow the soil to naturally remove nitrate that would otherwise shoot straight out to the stream in that tile outlet or tile main. 
and here in Minnesota, we've we've got a a couple of different styles. Uh, we've we've worked on one here at the research center that's uh, what we call uh, version 2.0. Um, so the 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 trenches uh, that Laura mentioned um, um, are are great, and and we've we've had a lot of good success with bioreactors. Um, again, you know there there can be it, it's not a perfect system. Uh, we can get bypass flow. Uh, in in situations where we have really really high flow and the capacity of the the bioreactors such that it might not be large enough to capture every drop of water from every event uh, that might be flowing through the system, um, but they are they are highly highly effective in removing nitrate and and have been shown to be able to remove phosphorus as well. Um, one of the other things that we've noticed and and we've had lots of discussions here amongst uh, researchers and some of the state agencies in Minnesota is that um, just because of the, 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 the wetting and drying of some of the bioreactors, we've seen some subsidence in some of the, the wood chip materials. Um, so when they become dry, uh, the uh, uh, a different type of bacteria and and actually fungi can get in there and and decompose that carbon pretty quickly. So so it's something that um, we're going to have to do uh, as we work through uh, as Laura was talking about in terms of implementation that we need to have, make sure that um, these are are well maintained um, uh, for the for the sort of traditional uh, in field bioreactor. We've also been working on one, and I I know. Uh, Laura is aware of some of the work we've been doing here uh, in Minnesota, where we've basically uh, taken and, and built bioreactors essentially uh, above ground to more or less kind of act uh, to be able to be set underneath, for, for example, in some situations, uh, say a tile outlet, um, and that we add water through the top uh, or through the bottom of a, of a bioreactor in, in what we call a, uh, a cube. Um, and we've used corn cobs and wood chips in there. We've, we've done various types of research and, and we found that it can be, they, they, these types of things, regardless of the, the style of the, the bioreactors can be really really effective in reducing nutrients one of the other one of the other challenges um, that that I've been challenged with by some of our, our colleagues in the state agencies is related to the the concept that Brad uh, mentioned a bit earlier and and I'm going to use a slightly different term here um, is, is the 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 other services that we can get the ecosystem services that we might get from some of these practices and and some of them are are a little bit limited um you know so the i i know that when we're thinking about the precious dollars that we have to invest in agriculture and and cleaning up some of the water that groups that are supplying the money uh are are probably maybe a little bit more interested in practices that have more ecosystem services than fewer. Um, and so at least right at, right at the moment, our bioreactors are, are really kind of one dimensional from the perspective of sort of providing a water quality ecosystem service and, and not a whole bunch of others. And so one of the, we, we've been trying to think and conceive some of our colleagues uh, that Laura and I have in ARS about, you know, how, how do we go about maybe, uh, you know, improving some of the ecosystem services uh, of some of these types of practices like bioreactors that, that maybe they're going to be, uh, you know, more uh, pollinator friendly or something like that, that, uh, that we could, it provides some additional ecosystem services. So um, 
we're we're not. I I I guess what what I'm driving at here is is that even though uh, we're talking about these edge of field practices, um, don't be mistaken that 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 we're done doing research on them. There are still other questions to be answered and things that we need to address uh, with all of these types of practices and and some of it relates to coming up with, you know, additional ecosystem services from some of these practices to make them more lucrative for, for not only farmers, but the environment. Um, one, of, one of the other ones uh, that, that I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about, uh, which uh, as, as, as we look into the, the not too distant future, and Brad and Laura both talked a little bit about this, is, is you know, thinking about water storage on the landscape, and as as Laura uh, alluded to, you know, constructed wetlands or reconnecting natural wetlands uh, where it makes sense. Uh, that's not going to really bother the farming operations too much. Um, are going to be practices that uh, you know will have some some water quality benefits for farming. They'll have some ecosystem service benefits, uh, such as things like habitat and things of that nature. Um, one of the other areas that we've been doing a, a fair amount of work over the years uh, here in Lamberton is, is that looking at ways that we can try to manage the water in our drainage ditches. And here in Minnesota, uh, as well as other states, I think of Indiana, Ohio, Iowa, uh, where where we've got uh, many, many miles of drainage ditch. Uh, it, it's uh, infrastructure that already exists. Um, and Currently, the paradigm that we use is, is get the water off the landscape as quickly as possible. Um, and and there, are, there are opportunities uh, to look at some of these drainage ditches, just the way that they're currently built. Um, some of them might be a bit oversized where we could temporarily store water in the drainage ditches to get some, uh, some temporary storage to delay, say, the peak flows or maybe help impact flooding. Um, we, we know here in Lamberton, we've seen pretty dramatic uh, reductions in nitrogen and phosphorus just by managing our drainage ditches with a little bitty check dam, like Laura's talking about, only a foot tall. Um, so we're not holding massive amounts of water back, um, but we're holding small amounts of water back, uh, which allows it more contact with the vegetation in the ditch, the, the biology that actually exists in the ditch um, to actually go through uh, for denitrifying some of the nitrogen that's there. But there are other possibilities if we kind of look into that crystal ball, possibly for things like, like our ditch research um, that we could move forward. And that is, is that it could also provide a source of water for additional drainage water recycling. So maybe instead of having to, to build new ponds, we could store some of the water in some of those ditches. Um, uh, of course, this relates to drainage laws and, and it gets complicated uh, really, really fast. But, you know, we, we need to be having these conversations and thinking about these, these types of things um, as, as we move forward uh, because of, you know, again, some of the possibilities of ecosystem services and, and using some of the infrastructure that already exists on the landscape uh, for multiple benefits that would include not just environmental benefit, but also um, some sort of a benefit like irrigation water, supplemental irrigation water for the farmers. Are these practices of uh, something a farmer can pursue, uh, or do they require local government governments to be involved? Uh, what's your take on that? In general, um, most of these practices are not going to be pursued without somebody else being involved. That really kind of obviously depends on the specific practice. 
Uh, certain things are much more personal. For instance, control drainage is just simply on a system by system basis. A farmer certainly could pursue that. Um, you know, you, you may be able to put in a bioreactor on your own if you choose to do that, possibly a saturated buffer. Uh, although it's worth noting that there's a lot of design work that goes into these. You're probably, I mean, you're, you're at least going to need somebody to get involved in designing it. It's not likely that, uh, that a, a farmer or probably even a contractor is able to size these things and so forth. But I think the bigger picture things when it comes to some of the stuff Jeff talked about, uh, constructed wetlands, uh, particularly some of the things involving ditch management, if we're looking at, uh, at uh, two-stage uh, drainage ditches, if we're looking at, uh, at potentially retaining water in the landscape, whether it's uh, uh, low dams or something of that sort to just slow water down, uh, that kind of stuff you can't do on your own. I mean, we know that we've got a drainage law in Minnesota and we have drainage authorities. And so you can't do a whole lot of stuff that's impacting your neighbors and the entire system unless you got permission to do it. And so I think that's really the key uh, for, for, for farmers uh, as far as uh, whether they're able to or want to pursue a practice on their own is really to kind of take a look at, uh, is this uh, completely within the boundaries of my farm? Uh, and, and whether you choose to, to, for instance, go in and try and get some cost share or something, that's kind of your own deal. Uh, however, um, are you even able to do it? Are you able to legally do it? And those are the bigger questions. And so as soon as it starts impacting uh, the entire system or, or you know, na- tile that your neighbors have that's connecting to yours uh, and so forth, uh, I, I just don't think it's really prudent in a lot of cases uh, to at least go and start having some conversations uh, uh, with with the drainage authority, your your county ditch inspector, or your soil and water conservation district, uh, those kinds of folks, and and make sure that uh, that everybody's on the same page. Yeah, one one other thing to add on to what what Brad was talking about too here is um, you know things like for example our 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 personal experiences with with drainage water recycling. Um, you know, here in Lamberton, we we are we had we've already had ponds in existence, so we didn't have to build anything. Um, our site that we have in Western Redwood County, uh, we, we had a site built um, uh, specifically for doing drainage water recycling. And, and <clears throat> Brad, uh, I'm glad you mentioned what you did because the, the, essentially the permitting process that we had to go through uh, took us probably almost a year and a half to get the permits and everything laid out uh, uh, in order to even be able to build that reservoir for drainage water recycling on farm. Um, so there's there's things that, uh, like you said, that take planning and you need some professionals involved, uh, especially when it comes to design. And I, I suspect that maybe Laura has some some experience with some of that design type of thing from her past as well. Yeah. And on that note, um, the NRCS as conservation partners are pretty critical in this conversation too. Uh, the practices of bioreactors and saturated buffers are both um, accepted standard practices within the NRCS toolbook of practices. Um, and so the, and the, the NRCS is just a real critical partner in this um, conservation conversation. I think the other thing that we need to, to keep in mind is uh, these practices are, in most cases, there's going to be certain ones that uh, work well in certain parts of the state and not in others. Controlled drainage 
uh, requires the field to be relatively flat or it gets really expensive. Uh, there's parts of the state where we have a lot of opportunity to, to construct wetlands or to uh, uh, re, re, uh, rejuvenate existing wetlands by running water into them. Uh, however, for instance, the southeastern part of the state is not characterized by naturally occurring surface waters, so those things wouldn't really happen there. Uh, however, those tend to be really nice landscapes for doing saturated buffers. Uh, there are opportunities for bioreactors in that part of the state and, uh, and so forth. And so some of these things are also going to be fairly regional in nature. Uh, from an individual farmer's perspective, uh, you just simply need to understand kind of what's, what's likely in your toolkit and what's not in your toolkit based on, on your farm and where you live in the state. Is there any assistance available for farmers who are interested in one of these practices? Yeah, so so historically, a lot of the funding does kind of come from USDA, um, you know, and and so I think most farmers are pretty uh, pretty much up to speed on on how that whole process works. Uh, uh, the the uh, you know one of the the problems with with that uh, historically is is how much money is available and. Frequently, they'll score the practice and rate you against other people and look for, for uh, you know, who, who's getting the most uh, bang for their buck for the money spent, or sometimes you're required to address multiple concerns. Uh, you can't just go in and do the single thing you want to do. You got to do all this other stuff also. That can, that can get to be a hang up. However, in Minnesota, uh, fortunately, we have a fairly decent sized pool of money that comes from the state to work on, on the priorities that are set forth in the watershed plans. And so that, that assistance is, is getting uh, uh, much more readily available. I guess it should be noted that uh, we've had kind of a backlog of lots of people who wanted to do lots of stuff that there just wasn't cost share available for. Uh, that's been getting paid for by a lot of that money, but that backlog is being cleared. And so a lot of the watershed groups now are able to kind of look more at their priorities and target that money towards the things that are going to accomplish their goals uh, and spend less of that uh, having to deal with, uh, you know, farmer so-and-so has had all these sediment basins they've wanted for years and they just couldn't get the funding for it. You know, that stuff's getting kind of cleared up. Uh, you know, but I think the other thing, and this has been talked about a fair amount, is 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 just simply technical assistance. Um, you know, most of these practices are relatively uh, complicated in terms of their design, especially when it comes to sizing them. Uh, and so, you know, I, I mentioned the fact that a farmer could do it. I mean, yeah, technically you could. You technically you could build your own septic system too. Uh, but it's not going to pass muster until somebody comes and checks the thing out and says this met uh, all legal requirements. You know, similarly to some of this kind of stuff, you could do it yourself, but, uh, you know, you probably need to do an awful lot of studying before you actually could come up with a design that functions. Uh, and so that's really probably the key is uh, uh, to just simply be talking to people that are, that are resources. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think we don't take uh, full advantage of oftentimes in Minnesota is the extent to which we have free advice for this kind of stuff. You know, your soil and water conservation district is a point to walk in the door and uh, they can put you in touch with a, a engineer. There are engineers who are assigned to regions in the state uh, who can answer a lot of just, just your general questions to start with before they get really specific on actually preparing designs and help you kind of sort through whether this is something that's going to happen. You know, I think the other thing is, is, um, well, there's really, there's, there's two more points I want to make. One is, 
farmers tend to be reluctant to do a lot of stuff that doesn't involve making profit because if you start doing things that don't make you a profit, you can be out of business. You know, we know that ag cycles. And so you get a couple of bad years where you're not making any money and you spend a lot of money on stuff that didn't pay you back. Um, that can, that can turn into trouble. Uh, you know, and so in a lot, the case of a lot of these practices, they're intended to have environmental outcomes. You know, Jeff did talk a little bit about some things that could increase yields, but in general, a lot of these practices, what you're really looking at doing is having a positive environmental impact and, and then just not negatively impacting your yields. And so the yields stay the same. And so typically we are looking at trying to find a way to, to uh, cover the cost of this stuff uh, and then reap the environmental benefits. You know, so so that's probably the 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 big thing uh, when it comes to getting assistance with this. The other thing is is obviously when it starts involving more than one individual. I mean, it's is extremely difficult for a group of farmers to, for instance, pursue a, a constructing a wetland uh, when it's crossing two or three property lines. I mean that that just involved that just it just begs for getting somebody involved at the local level. Uh, who can get everybody on the same page uh, and look for how that's going to all be accomplished. Are there any last words from the group? Yeah, I will just highlight that while we're talking about the edge of field practices today, and we certainly love some of our edge of field practices, you know, bioreactors is a favorite of mine. But I want to highlight that it will take all of the practices, all of the conservation practices in our toolbox to make significant headway towards meeting our nitrogen and phosphorus loss reduction goals. And they will take all of the practices implemented at a very high level across our landscape in Minnesota. And so whatever practice works for you, I ask that you consider it, visit with your local soil and water conservation district, um, just start the conversation today. We appreciate your help. And a lot of these practices uh, in Minnesota, uh, we, they are out there in, for the sake of their, their being tried and they're being demonstrated, but they are not widespread. And so some of our survey data, for instance, that Nitrogen Smart indicates um, farmers have heard of this stuff, but very few people have ever actually tried it. Uh, I'm going to, to throw out the fact that with the state's nutrient reduction strategy, uh, you will be going beyond just hearing this stuff. Uh, people will be coming and asking uh, if you are interested and willing to uh, put some of these things on your farm. So I think it's valuable for every farmer to get themselves up to speed on these practices so that when the time comes, they can decide if things are right for them. That about does it here for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, or AFREC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>